Good morning. Welcome. We are glad you're here. Uh, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you this morning um, humbly. Lord, as we sing the words, uh, take the world and give me Jesus, um, my prayer is that uh, the heart of this people is pleasing to you. The world can be so appealing, so inviting. <clears throat> and I pray that as, as your people sing a song like that, that we would not do it with just these lofty, big statements, but that we would be thinking specifically about what it means for each of us uh, individually and then corporately to, to, to say, take the world and give me Jesus. Um, just the song itself, before we even get to the sermon, that, that, that causes us, Lord, to, to figure out uh, where's confession and repentance needed? What are some ways that we are just too entrenched in, in the world? And are, are we truly pleased with our Savior, satisfied with our God? So, Lord, I pray that, um, that hearts are true and hearts are being prepared as, as we sing things like that. Um, this morning, we, we counted a privilege to, to gather together and to open the word, uh, to consider the story of a people, knowing that it's our story and it's been going on for a long time because of the way you designed it. Before we get to the specifics of our day together here, I want to pray for another church, pray for um, Grace, just pray for Pastor Steve Lawson. Um, I'm thankful for the many years he has been in this community and just continues to, to serve. I pray that he and Karen are enjoying you together and uh, that he is um, preaching and leading out of worship. Um, I pray that you would bless their ministry and bless their church. Let them walk in wisdom and uh, help them to uh, be a bright light in this community. Lord, I also pray for the McGraw family as they're on sabbatical. Um, we pray, Lord, that uh, you would bless them with rest and with growth, and that, uh, that they would be enjoying you um, as they have some, some unique time that has been set aside uh, for them. Lord, as we uh, open up the word this morning, uh, I confess in front of the body that uh, I don't have the goods to, to make this awesome or to make it perfectly clear. And so I just, I, I trust the, the work of the Spirit. Uh, Lord, I've trusted you in the preparation of this, and I, I trust you in the delivery of it as well. I pray that you would bless us this morning uh, with wisdom, with insight, with understanding that we may walk in, in faithfulness and that it might be pleasing to you. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted to let y'all know that as Ben and Christy are on sabbatical, Y'all are allowed to sit in these chairs. Um, it's kind of weird, this void here. Um, kind of sweet, though, as well. So uh, we're in 1 Samuel 9. Last week, we began a new series titled um, Faith During Faithlessness. And what we did was we sort of just dove into this um, setting of Israel where it's some dark days for Israel. Uh, Israel was spiraling into... Um, uh, just immoral living. Um, it, we, we called it moral anarchy last week. Um, it's a pretty strong term, but what, what happened with Israel was they were no longer, at this point in their history, they, they were not seeing the leadership of God and they were not submitting to the authority of God. And what, what that led to was, 
was this sort of moral spiral where people were doing what they wanted to do. The nation wasn't being faithful as a whole. The many weren't being faithful individually. And um, the other part of that dynamic is that this is a time in Israel's history where we're transitioning from the time of the judges to the time of the kings. And so last week we looked at the life of Samuel and how um, God worked through Samuel to bless the nation of Israel during that transition from the era of the judges to the era of the kings. And what we're going to do today is actually make that transition and look at the first king of the era, King Saul. Um, Now, I want to make sure we all understand the context because these Old Testament narratives, um, one of the reasons I wanted to preach through 1 and 2 Samuel in four weeks is to take a big big chunk and and really just kind of put our eyes on it. there's no possible way to plumb the depths of this in four weeks. And so one thing I would encourage you as a body is know for this month, we're in First and Second Samuel. So in your personal devotional readings, your time in the Word, I'd encourage you to read through it and familiarize yourself with the narrative as well. I want you all to be mindful as we go through this morning of just the timelessness of what's going on here. Um, these things that we're engaging are not new. There's nothing new under the sun. I'm reading about the life of Saul, and I'm seeing just conviction in my own life, just these details that are so specific yet timeless. And so um, that's our context. The nation of Israel um, sadly has asked for a king. And what we saw last week was that that was sinful because what, what Israel did was they were rejecting the Lord as their king by asking for an earthly king. And we found that in their motive and their reasoning. They said, hey, um, Samuel, who's the last judge and a great prophet in Israel, they went to Samuel and said, give us a king like all the other nations. That wasn't God's design for Israel. They weren't supposed to be like all the other nations. The absence of an earthly king pointed to the presence of a heavenly king. And so for them to to want this transition and to, to want to be led by an earthly king was sinful. Yet God grants their request and says, Samuel, if 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 this is a request I'm going to grant, this is what's going to happen. You're going to, I'm going to tell you who this guy's going to be, and it's going to be your responsibility, Samuel, to tell him how he is to lead this nation as a king. And Samuel, last week, um, we saw that his life was just listen and obey, listen and obey, listen and obey. So that's our context. Interestingly, the book of 1 Samuel is really more about Saul, which is who we're going to look at today. And the book of 2 Samuel is really more about David. And so just like um, Samuel's life in 1 Samuel, the book also contains the entire life beginning to end of Saul, who provides a picture of, if you're writing your notes on a leader who's impressive. Saul is impressive. Now let's look at why. Um, As we dive into the story, I want you all to know, like I can't read, like I kind of just wanted to start reading and read like four or five chapters and then talk about it a little bit, but we'd be here for a few hours, and I know y'all probably wouldn't appreciate that. So um, what we're going to do is I, I want to just kind of open up the story for you and just tell you, this, net, um, this started, this whole story with Saul started as a turn of events where Saul was looking for some donkeys that his father lost. He's out looking for these donkeys. God has already come to Samuel and said, you're going to meet a guy um, named Saul, and he, and he gives him details. Um, they meet, they run into each other just coincidentally. I use that term humorously because God's got his hands all over this. God's very sovereign. They run into each other. Um, so in fact, they're going to find the prophet and the seer so they can find their donkeys. And so Saul runs into this guy named Samuel says, do you know where the prophet and the seer is? And Samuel's like, you got him. And so, um, and then Samuel's like, oh, I know who you are. God told me about you. And then they go to this dinner. Um, Saul is seated at a dinner and honored there. 
And as you read through the text, it's humorous because he's clearly confused. He's like, what's going on? You're giving me the portion of the priesthood and you're honoring me and I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I don't understand. So um, that's how it starts with him. It's sort of a weird, sort of just the dailiness of life, this turn of events. The Lord uses it for good and, and brings them together. And when it comes time to anoint him as a king, um, he's hiding in the coat room. Okay? So that's the big, glorious entrance that we have for the first king of Israel. Where is that guy? Oh, he's hiding in the coat room, in the, in the, in the coat closet, because he's, he's a little intimidated and scared. So um, uh, Saul begins this. Pay attention that at the beginning of this story, Saul thinks too little of himself, okay? So that's where we start. He thinks too little of himself. They got to go pull him out of the coat room. Um, and it's funny because we'll find out something else about him uh, as we look at 1 Samuel 9. So look at 1 Samuel 9, verses 1 through 2, and then I'm going to skip to uh, verse 15 and read through 10, 1. So uh, 1 Samuel 9, verses 1 through 2 says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphias, and a, a, Benjamite, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome... I want you all to pay attention to why Saul's impressive as I read through this. A handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. This is weird, right? I mean, normally when we look at God's leadership, handsome and tall and young is not like the things that... We don't, like, if pastoral search committees go out, they're not like, okay, we're looking for handsome, tall, and young. Those are the top three non-negotiables. We'll look at the other things, but he has to be handsome, tall, and young. But that's why Saul was first immediately, I guess, impressive uh, to the nation. Handsome, tall, and young. And skip over to 9.15 and read with me through 10.1. It says, Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cries come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place. For today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys, it's like bum, bum, bum. It's like he, I know about the donkeys. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them. They've been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? And Saul answered, you see this confusion. Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man who was traveling with him and brought them into the hall, uh, gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Saul said, and Samuel said, see what was kept is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed so that you might eat with the guests. I want you to, what I want you to see as we're reading through this is that's the priest's portion so there's a holiness and a seriousness about the calling that's being placed on Saul's life. And hopefully he's putting these, these pieces together as they go forward. 
But that's the portion of the priest that's being given to Saul. So the calling on his life is significant, and, and it's holy, and he, and he is anointed of God. It goes on to say, so Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came, from, came down from the high place and into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he laid down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, both he and Samuel, and went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Quite the turn of events for Saul. I'm looking for lost donkeys. I just got anointed as the new king of Israel. It's significant. So um, the narrator refers to Saul as handsome and tall. In 1024, even Samuel, who, if we know anything about Samuel from these last couple weeks, he's calm, cool, even-headed, not super impressed by man, doesn't put his trust in man. In 1024, even Samuel says, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And then in chapter 11, we see the high point of Saul's reign where the Ammonites are defeated and the kingdom is renewed. Remember, Israel was in a sort of turmoil because they were turning from the leadership. And now Saul is sort of taking those reins and he's, and he's pulling that leadership back in and he's serving the people. The Ammonites are defeated. And we're going to read this in chapter 11. What I want you to see is that the kingdom's being renewed. And to get a, a feel for how much of a high watermark this is, look with me at chapter 11. It's a shorter chapter. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. Now, you know you are working with a bad dude, a, a, a person who is evil, wicked, and, and pretty just violent. Who's, he's taken these people over, and they're saying, Okay, make a treaty with us, and we'll serve you. And he says, Okay, but part of that treaty is going to be that I gouge your eyes out. Okay? Um, that's not good, and hopefully the people who love us won't like that. Um, so it goes on to say, The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there's no one to save us, uh, we will give ourselves up to you. I mean, that's a pretty hopeless situation. Let us send messengers to our people, and if no one can save us, uh, we'll let you gouge out our eyes. I mean, that's, that's a pretty significant horrible, violent thing. And it said, when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. Um, and Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they're weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. This is, he, he was right to be angry here. He took a yoke of oxen, and cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Saul's making a statement here. He's saying, Saul and Samuel are going to lead you people, and if you don't come out, you see all these little pieces of oxen that I sent throughout the country, I will do the same to your oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people. 
and they came out as one man. It's a beautiful picture where they sort of repent. They come out together as one person, as one man. And when he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. So when the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Of course they were glad. They get to keep their eyeballs. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. So, The table is set here. The next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, uh, the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. That's a that's a serious whooping right there. We started whooping you early, and then we beat you up until the heat of the day. And once we're done, there's not even two of you that could run away and hide together and take care. No, no two are left together. That's how big of a a beating this was. And then in verse 12, it says, Then the people said to Samuel, "Who Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. So now the people are saying, Saul, you led us, and it was good. And that was a blessing to us. Now, who were those people who said no to that leadership? Let's go kill them. And Saul says, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is a high watermark. The kingdom is being renewed. They have their king. He has led them in victory over the Ammonites. They have freedom. There's, there's things being established that need to be established. This is good. And that's about as far as the good of Saul's life goes. It's abrupt. If this feels abrupt in the sermon, I want it to feel abrupt. Because if you read the text, it's abrupt. That's it. That was a high watermark. And from there, it gets way worse for years. Following chapter 11, Saul's life and career go downhill for the next 20 chapters, covering the span of 40 years. So we have this renewal, we have this good thing, and then it goes downhill for 40 years. Saul just tanks. Have you all ever had a bad week where it's just like, man, everything started going downhill on Monday and didn't really get any better? Think about four decades of that. That's what Saul experienced here. It's really sad. If you just like listen to the audio of, of, of First Chronicles, um, you're like, oh, man, that's good. Oh, yeah. That's a... And after you listen to chapter 11, you're, you're like kind of like, oh, man, this is hard to listen to. You ever seen one of those movies where it goes so bad for the character? You're just like, man, I kind of I don't want to watch that anymore because this is going terribly. It's painful. That's how it is to, to read through this and to listen to this because he goes so far downhill. So the question that we have to ask is, what could cause such a decline and a downward spiral in a leader who seemed to hold such promise and possibilities? He was tall and handsome and young. So I want us to take a look at the text and see if we can't gather some evidence. Following chapter 11 and chapter 12, Saul disobeys direction from Samuel, who is heard from God. So remember, Samuel is one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. God speaks to Samuel. Samuel speaks to God, or Samuel speaks to Saul. Saul rejects Samuel, therefore rejecting God. That happens in chapter 12, right from the get-go. And then in chapter 13, he doesn't wait on Samuel 
and ends up um, offering an unlawful sacrifice. So look at chapter 13, verses 8 through uh, 14 with me. Now we're on the downward spiral, so let's climb on and and see how it feels. Uh, Chapter 13, 8 through 14. Um, Saul is waiting on Samuel to to make this sacrifice as as a part of the worship of the the nation of Israel. And um, Samuel has not gotten there in the time that Saul thought he should get there. So in 13.8, it says, He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Well, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, or whatever, however you say that, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. I forced myself. And Samuel said to Saul, Good job. Way to take the reins. No, he didn't say that. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. Remember, Samuel's talking to a king. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This is a pivotal moment right here. I mean, he offered a sacrifice that he had no business offering. He didn't have the authority. He didn't have the details. He was not authorized to to bring the sacrifice before the Lord. He was seeking the Lord's favor, but he was doing it in the wrong way. I want you all to see that. He wanted the Lord's favor, but he did it in a way that was completely self-serving and void of what the Lord had, had commanded it's a pivotal, a pivotal moment. From the outside looking in, we must not miss in these verses that the heart of the leader is too important of a thing to overlook, or, to overlook or neglect. More than that, the heart of the worshiper, we're talking about an anointed one here, the heart of the worshiper is not to be neglected. It's not enough to go through the motions. The worshiper must approach God on God's terms. I want you to know that. As worshipers, you approach God on God's terms. You don't just make up your own program on, I'm going to worship God in this, or I'm going to do this in this way. I'll try to please God by doing this in this way. No, we go to his word and we say, what does the Lord say about how we approach him and how we worship him and how we come before him? You approach God on God's terms. And because Saul persists in this disobedience, this downward spiral just continues. Again, in chapter 15, Saul disobeys the Lord. And this is a big confrontation. Turn over to 15. Samuel confronts Saul, teaching us a really important lesson for God's anointed. Read read these few verses with me, 22 through 24 and 15. And what I want you to know is that I'm reading this confrontation out loud. This is not only Samuel rejecting Saul. This is the Lord rejecting Saul, and he's speaking through Samuel, okay? So the first king is being rejected by God. And for us, we should say, man, what caused that? What's going on here? I want to understand why such failure could occur. Verses 22 through 24 in chapter 15. And Samuel said to Saul, 
Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. What happened was they were supposed to capture the Amalekites and devote everything to destruction. But what they did, it'd be like someone coming in this room and the Lord saying, devote it all to destruction. And they'd be like, okay, well, these cheap plastic plants will burn. And uh, this, uh, this old monitor, it's not very worthwhile. We'll burn that. And uh, the carpet's ugly, so we'll get rid of that. I'm not big on brown chairs. We'll get rid of that. But you know what? There's some value in the sound booth. So rather than devoting that to destruction, let's keep it but we'll tithe it unto the Lord. You see what's going on? That's what they did with the Amalekites. It was going in, they were supposed to wipe them out, devote everything to destruction, but what they did was they said, um, some of this stuff's pretty valuable, and it'd be beneficial to us to keep it. We will give part of it to the Lord, but, but we don't want to devote it to destruction. Well, God said devote it to destruction because he didn't need them getting wrapped up with worldly things and being given to these, these things of, of earthly value. He was moving forward his kingdom, not theirs. So um, go on and read. It says, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. So just because you kept that ram that was really fat and sacrificed it and then kept a bunch of others for yourself, God's not as pleased with that as if he would have been if you just did what he said. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord he has also rejected you from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. And look at his reason. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. That's his reason. I want you all to see it. Because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. One of the issues at play here is that while Saul was impressive to others as they affirmed him in that, now he was also very impressive to himself. You see what happened there? He was impressive to others, and and it was a matter of time because he focused on himself so much that, that he became impressive to himself. According to his actions, this man who began his ministry in the coat closet, thinking lowly of himself, thinking too little of himself, has now swung to the other end of the pendulum and now clearly thinks too highly of himself. He trusts himself more than he trusts others. He trusts that he can give the sacrifice just because he's going to do it. He trusts that he can make a call on things, even though he's going against God. He trusts himself more than he trusts others. And Samuel admonishes Saul, and he says to him, your sacrifice of the things devoted, though their earthly value is significant, does not excuse the heart of selfishness behind your actions. You feared the people. Remember, that was his reason. You feared the people. You wanted to do what they wanted you to do. So the heart of selfishness behind your worship even is not excusable. You refuse to listen to God. But you thought that you could achieve righteousness by your own means. That kind of sacrifice, Saul, is not pleasing to God. It would have been pleasing to God for you to fear him and to listen to him as opposed to fearing the people and listening to the people. This morning, it's important for us to see that this is how it will always play out. If you fear others above God, you have misplaced your treasure. I'm going to say it again. If you fear others above God, 
you have misplaced your treasure. I want us to see the connection between fear and treasure. Remember what we learned last week, that whatever you treasure will command your desires and shape your, and shape your behavior. Whatever you treasure will command your desires and shape your behavior. Treasuring approval from others will lead to fear of others. He treasured their approval. Saul treasured their approval. So now he's fearing them to such a degree that he's doing what they said, which is not in line with what God said. So the question for us is, how much is our fear of people shaping what we desire and what we do? I want us to be really honest uh, with ourselves, with the Lord this morning. Um, Fear of others is something that we can put on a facade and act like it's not an issue for us. Um, but it will play out in your relationships, and it will play out in your worship. Um, I've had to reckon with some things. I, as I was reading through this text, I, I'm looking at the life of Saul and saying, I'm a pastor, and I kind of relate to Saul. Sometimes I, get, I, I hear real loudly what I think people want. I, I just kind of want to seek their approval. Something I struggle with as a young pastor is, I want to word this right because I've gotten so good at making it sound good when it's just sin. Um, I really want people to know because I, I see a lot of young pastors just be goofy and dumb. And so I want people to know that I take this really seriously. It seems kind of noble, right? I mean, I'm not looking for applause, but it seems kind of noble, right? I really want people to know that I take this seriously. I want y'all to look at the small little difference between I want to honor the Lord and take this seriously or I want people to know I take this seriously. Do you see the difference there? You see the difference there? One of those is I want to honor the Lord. I want to take this seriously. And the other is I want to make sure when people look my direction, they know I'm not, I'm not you know, halfway doing this. I want them to know that I, I, I take this seriously and I want to lead well and I want to honor the Lord. And, and all that can be about all those things. Leading well, honoring the Lord can be all about pleasing people if you're not careful. It's, it's subtle. So that's why I want us to, to really try to open our minds and be honest about our, our fear of other people. Because it can be subtle, it can be deceiving, but for all of us, it may be there in some manner or another. And I, and I want us to not just think in vague terms, but to think in specific terms so that we can put to death, therefore, what is earthly in us. Put to death the deeds of the flesh and confess our sins and repent. So question, how much is our fear of people shaping what we desire and what we do? How often does the approval of people cause us to gossip or to lie or to just spend a lot of time thinking about their acceptance of us, or cause us to jeopardize our morals in any way? How much does our desire to be accepted cause us to plunge into the depths of jealousy of other relationships that we wish we were a part of? I want to encourage you to give this more than just a passing thought, and here's why. This is the very thing that ends up dethroning the first king of Israel. Do y'all see that? This is the thing that dethrones the first king of Israel. Being the first king of Israel is no small matter. And what ended up taking him off of his throne, being rejected by the Lord, confronted by Samuel, was his fear of people that led to him doing what they wanted as opposed to what God wanted. This is no small matter. It dethroned the first king of Israel. Now, if fearing others and desperately needing their approval is something that you struggle with, um, I want to let y'all know of a good resource. It's a book written by Ed Welch called When People Are Big and God Is Small. 
Um, the main point of the book is that each of us as God's anointed should need people less so that we can love them more. I want you all to try to make a shift right now and start thinking about other people and not yourself. Need people less and love them more. Welch states in his book, the task God sets for us is to need them less and love them more. And listen to what he says. Instead of looking for ways to manipulate others, we will ask God what our duty is toward them. Instead of looking for ways to manipulate others, we will ask God what our duty is toward them. This is what Saul was guilty of. He has a responsibility and an obligation toward the nation of Israel. But he fell short of fulfilling it because he tried to manipulate the people by doing what they wanted so that he could have their approval. Y'all see that? It wasn't just this innocent thing of being a people pleaser. No, no, that will always play out in you manipulating people. That's what he was doing. He was trying to manipulate the people of Israel so that he could have their approval. So, I mean, I'll hear people say sort of flippantly sometimes, I've said it flippantly, like, I'm kind of a people pleaser. Well, let's be careful about that, because if I hear that, I'm going to say, okay, I want to make sure I don't let you manipulate me. Does that make sense? You see that connection there? Uh, We will manipulate people to try to earn their approval, and there's a a significant connection between um, those dynamics. Many of us need to see this as manipulation. Some of us um, just use the excuse that we really are just trying to please others when it's more about us, or we just really want other people to be happy. But if you're pursuing someone else's approval by pleasing them above and beyond focusing on God's approval to where you start, start um, making exceptions to God's rules, then I want you to know that you're guilty of both disobedience and manipulation. Don't be a manipulator. You can be guilty of both disobedience and manipulation. Saul wasn't just um, the, the, uh, a, sad, um, a sad character who got caught up in, in what other people thought. He was a manipulator. He tried to manipulate people because he needed their approval so deeply. Listen to Proverbs 29, 25. You don't have to turn there. I would mark it in your notes. Maybe go read it in your devotional time this week. Proverbs 29, 25 says, Fear of man will prove to be a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. I want you all to think about what a snare does. A snare entangles you. And if you don't get out of it, like if an animal can't get out of a snare in the wild... You don't, you, sometimes you'll either come up to a live animal if they're in a snare and the hunter will kill the animal, or you come up to a dead animal in a snare because it couldn't get out and it maybe froze to death or something like that. So uh, the picture of a snare is, is, is something that leads to violent death. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. So not only is it disobedient to be a people pleaser, it's also dangerous. You see that? Whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. It's not just a matter of disobedience. It's dangerous to have fear of man above fear of the Lord. So I want you to contrast what we see from Saul with what we see from Samuel. Seeing these guys side by side in this Old Testament narrative is helpful for us as worshipers. It's helpful for us as God's anointed to be able to say, what do I need to do with this? How do I move in this? Because Samuel loves the nation of Israel Because Samuel loves Saul, and because Samuel, most of all, loves the Lord, Samuel confronts Saul. We're talking about a lot of relational dynamics this morning because that's what's in our text. Because he loves the nation, because he loves Saul, and because he loves the Lord, Samuel confronts Saul. 
If you really love others, you will be able to confront them when it's necessary. Some of, some of us think completely opposite of that. If we're honest, some of us think the total opposite where it's like, no, 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 I love them so much I can never confront them. I love them so much, I don't want to be the one, like we're real close and stuff, and so I don't want to be the one who says like what they're doing wrong or what I see because it'll crush them. We're too close. I, I don't want to confront someone because I don't want to lay that burden on them. In fact, I would just rather a total stranger do it. Do you really want a total stranger confronting your closest friends or your closest relatives about the sin in their lives? Would it not be more loving and helpful for you to do it if it's appropriate and right? So what I want us to see is that if, if, you, if you really love someone, you'll be able to confront them when it's necessary. Now, I do want to put a warning in there. Don't be the person who has deemed yourself the constant tuner-upper because no one likes that person. They'll, they'll see you coming and they'll run the other way. It's like, oh, oh man, he's going to tune me up. I'm out of here. Don't, be, don't deem yourself the tuner-upper where I will always look at people's lives and make sure after the conversation with me that they'll know what they're doing wrong. You don't want to be that person either. But if you love someone, you'll confront them when it's necessary. In fact, I want to take it even a little bit further than that. If you really love someone, you will refuse to be controlled by them. Write it in your notes. If you, it's, this is the kind of point you got to think through. And I've been thinking through it all week. And I'm going to think through it in the week to come. If you really love someone, you will, in fact, refuse to be controlled by them. What I mean is, let's go back to our text. Saul showed a lack of love toward Israel by allowing Israel to control his actions. It didn't benefit Israel. Ultimately, it led to him being dethroned. Okay, we had a king. He was handsome, tall, and young. And he led us in a victory over the Ammonites. We, we knocked out the Amalekites. This is good. The kingdom's being restored. This is good. But, but what happened was he allowed them to control him. He allowed the nation to have control over him, and it didn't benefit the nation. In fact, it caused them to go into more confusion and more turmoil. If you love someone, you will refuse to be controlled by them. Saul showed that lack of love toward Israel by allowing Israel to control his actions. I feared the people, so I did what they wanted me to do. And look at 1530, that same chapter. I want you to see Saul's response to the confrontation. Samuel confronts Saul, and here's his response in, chapter, in verse 30. <clears throat> then he, Saul, said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So what does Saul reveal about what's important uh, to him in this verse? For Saul, it's all about Saul. It's about reputation. Yes, Samuel, I've sinned. I'm going to acknowledge that. I may verbally repent. I may, I may even repent in my heart. But guess what? I'm going to need you to go with me so that um, uh, uh, honor me now before the elders of my people. Honor me now before the elders of my people. It's still about Saul. For Saul, it's all about Saul. It's about this reputation. Even in his confession, his aim is to be honored before the elders of the people. And look just a little earlier in that same chapter. Chapter 15 is really sad. I mean, there's just so much horrible stuff that Saul does. Look at verses 10 through 12 in the same chapter, 15 verses 10 through 12. What else does Saul do that was out of order? <clears throat> the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. 
That's the word of the Lord. Look at what Saul has done. And the Lord says, I regret that I've made him king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, behold, he has set up a monument for himself. What? And turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. What else did he do that was out of line? He set up a monument to himself. You don't, if you're a humble person who's serving the Lord humbly, you don't do that. That's Nebuchadnezzar type stuff. Y'all know Nebuchadnezzar? Sets up the monument of himself. That's not appropriate for the king of Israel. He's to, he's to honor the Lord and to do all the Lord commands. And so here the Lord rejects Saul. Samuel's upset. He prays all night about it. He wakes up the next morning. That is sometimes how it will play out. If you have something you're burdened about, you pray about it all night. The next morning you may find out more bad news. I prayed for him all night and he did what? He set up a monument to himself, but you persevere. We see persevering in Samuel. We see self-centered service in Saul. It was a lot of alliteration that I didn't intend, but maybe you'll remember it. This encounter between Saul and Samuel sets the stage for the rest of the book. Saul becomes tormented by jealousy. That's another factor. If, if you fear others, you need their approval, it's just a short matter of time before jealousy creeps in. Saul becomes tormented by jealousy, and his kingship is increasingly eclipsed by the real main character of First and Second Samuel, who's David. For those of you who don't know, we'll be spending the next two weeks looking at the life of David, and um, it's necessary to know that David is the man who will become king after Saul. And in fact, what we see if we zoom out is that all of this is being set up so that, so that David takes the throne. It's, it's more important than Saul taking the throne. And as God removes his blessing from Saul's kingship and rejects Saul in chapter 15 through Samuel, David is shown favor by the Lord. In 1613, the word says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. As David grows in fame, Saul grows in resentment. And it's it's not just a resentment that he can bottle up inside. It leads to him repeatedly trying to kill David. I mean, listen to the story. Climb into the narrative. He tries to kill David over and over again. And then if you read through this, this text, David restrains himself from killing Saul over and over again. He could have, but he doesn't. Yet Saul keeps trying to kill David over and over again to such a degree, his bitterness and his hatred increases to such a level that in chapter 22, I want y'all to listen to this. Saul leads a foreigner to kill 85 Israelite priests because one of them helped David. Did y'all hear that? That's wicked. You were anointed to be the king of Israel. I want you all to think about all you know of the Israelite priesthood. Who put it in order? What are those men supposed to do? What does it mean to be an anointed priest of God? What responsibilities do you have? One of those 85 priests in this village helped David. Samuel said, I don't know which one it was. I'm going to kill all of them. And he killed 85 Israelite priests. It's wicked. Mark Dever notes that, in other words, Saul, who is the leader of God's people, becomes the opponent of God's will. I want you to know that if you're in a leadership role of any kind, if, if, you, if you oppose God's will, he won't keep you there. 
It's only a matter of time before you'll be removed from that role. Hopefully, you're walking closely in a body and the sin will be made evident. You'll have opportunity to repent of that and to confess that before you're removed, but that's something we never see in Saul's life. We never see confession. He'd become the opponent of God's will. Consider that Saul's position in the kingdom did not exempt him from the possibility of horrible failure. This should sober us. As God's anointed sitting here, those who have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit, who are being indwelled by the Holy Spirit right now, his, his position didn't, didn't exempt him from the possibility of this horrible failure that, that he encounters. Um, it should sober us. I mean, I want us to look at this text and I want us to be sober. I don't want us to just read it as a story a long time ago in a faraway land. I want us to, to rightly allow this to sober us. If we find ourselves with an opportunity to lead God's people in any manner as a teacher, like I want to I make this clear that if anyone's sitting here saying, well, I'm not a leader, I'm more of a follower, so this really doesn't pertain to me. Stop. I don't, I don't want you to think like that. Because God gives us opportunity and you have a responsibility toward other people because of what God has done in your life. If you're a teacher, a volunteer, an elder, a deacon, a parent, a spouse, maybe you're just the more spiritually mature person in a friendship. If we become too focused on ourselves, if we as a people become too focused on ourselves, we will fail both God and his people. Pride, resentment, entitlement, and jealousy will kill a ministry very, very quickly. No matter how impressive you are to others, if your ministry is all about you, it will fail. No matter how impressive you are to others, man, they, I mean, I, I know of a lot of people in ministry. They have posters and headshots and all these things. No matter how impressive you are to others, no matter how many times others come up to you and say, man, that blessed me. That was good. Thank you for speaking the Lord's truth to me. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for leading us in worship. Thank you for leading this thing. Whatever it is, no matter how impressive you are to others, if your ministry is about you, it will fail. It's just a matter of time. Because if you turn on God, remember what we've learned last week, it's just a matter of time before you turn on each other. Let's look at how it ended for Saul. Turn to the end of 1 Samuel, chapter 31. Samuel has died. David has taken a, a new role in the kingdom. We'll talk more about that next week. But I want to look at how it ends for Saul. Chapter 31, verses 1 through 6. Now the Philistines fought against Israel... And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul says to his armor bearer, I mean, picture Saul wounded by archers. I mean, that's probably arrows sticking out of him. He looks at his armor bearer and says, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. <coughs> Saul's saying, these uncircumcised Philistines, I don't want to die by them because there's less honor in that. And I don't want to be mistreated by them, tortured potentially. And so he says, run me through with your sword. The armor bearer uh, would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul, this is how it ends for Saul. Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. 
Thus Saul died, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. That's a pretty sad ending to the life of the first king of Israel. And it's because he feared people more than he feared God. That's where it led. That's the final say in his life on earth. That's where it led him. The thing that we need um, to see is that we never observed in Saul a really necessary shift. Saul began his ministry thinking too little of himself. As he was affirmed as impressive, Saul began to think too highly of himself. But the shift that we never observed in Saul's life was simply thinking of himself less. You hear that? It's something we never, we never observed in Saul. He started thinking too low of himself. He ended thinking too high of himself. But we never saw a shift where he just thought of himself less. It was, this all has very little to do with self-esteem. We live in a culture that talks a lot about self-esteem. For many of us sitting here, we don't need to think less of ourselves. And for many of us sitting here, we don't need to think more highly of ourselves. We simply just need to think of ourselves less. Your world shouldn't be about you. Don't think too much about yourself. I'm not talking about high or low. Just stop. (laughs) Stop thinking about yourself all the time. I need to. I need to make sure I'm heeding this warning in Scripture. That's what we never observed in Saul, and it ended up being the the downfall of the first king of Israel. Don't give so much thought to yourself. Philippians 2 says that we should not look only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Don't look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So it's not a picture of recklessness. It's not a matter of just abandoning any goodness in your own life so you can serve other people. It's not a matter of being a total train wreck personally so that you can be the savior to other people. It says, take care of your business, but make sure you don't do it in a way where you neglect everyone else's. Look to the interests of other people. Think of yourself less. Saul had an obligation to the nation of Israel. And I want us to see this morning that as God's anointed, you have a responsibility to others as well. Jesus himself calls us to these responsibilities. You cannot allow yourself to be controlled by other people. You can't allow it. One of my favorite poems includes the line, All men count with you, but none too much. All men count with you, but none too much. So I don't want to live my life to where people count too much with me, and I'm just totally controlled by them, but I also don't want to live my life where people don't matter to me, and I just focus on me. All men count with you, but none too much. Don't allow people to control you so that you might be able to truly love them and serve them. Proverbs 11.25 says, Whoever brings blessing, turn there. Turn to Proverbs eleven twenty five. I want you to put your eyes on this. Proverbs eleven twenty five. My wife reminded me of this last night when I forced her to listen to part of the sermon. Proverbs eleven twenty five. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. Isn't that sweet? I'm not asking you to like be horrible on yourself. I'm saying rather than in trying to turn self-centeredness into a blessing, I want to encourage you to focus on others and enjoy the blessing that goes along with it. Another version says, 
Whoever refreshes others will himself be refreshed. That's the word of the Lord. That's sweet right there. So there's a great blessing in thinking of yourself less. It seems counterintuitive to some of us probably, but it's a great blessing to think of yourself less. As we take the supper this morning, the most remarkable example that we can consider is our Lord Jesus Christ. That's kind of the way every sermon's going to end, ever. Just so y'all know, it's like spoiler alert, um, we're going to talk about Jesus here and make sure that we don't miss this unbelievable example that he sets for us. Turn to Mark chapter 10. Christ sets an example for us, um, and in Mark 10, one of our deacons who serves well and who is really marked by, I don't want to embarrass him, so I'm not going to say his name, but it's a guy who I see regularly um, not thinking about himself too much. He just he pours himself out to other people. And on a handful of occasions, he has reminded me of this verse. Um, as, I, as I encourage him, he, he, he spits this verse back at me, and it's so good, and it's such an encouragement. Mark 10, 42 through 45. This is the part where James and John say um, they're they're trying to figure out who's going to sit at the right hand of Jesus, and it's kind of silly that they would be thinking such things in the presence of the King of Kings. And Jesus says in verse 42, Mark 10, 42, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but... It shall not be so among you. This is, this is Jesus saying, guys, this is not how, you're not going to lord authority over people. I, I'm Jesus, and I'm telling you, my disciples, that's not how it's going to be with you. And he goes on to say, it, but it will not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Jesus Christ just gave us a definition of greatness. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And this is the verse that one of y'all's deacons repeats so often. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve. As we distribute the elements this morning, I want you guys to spend time reflecting on two things very particularly. So as we're passing out the bread and the juice, I want us as a body to reflect on these two things and to consider them and to meditate on them. First, Jesus defines biblical greatness as being a servant. Jesus gives us a definition of greatness as being a servant. I want you all to think about that. The second thing I want you to think about is that Christ came not to be served, but to serve. As worshipers of Christ, that should do something to you. So meditate on those two things while we distribute the elements. As I prepared the sermon this week, I'm just kind of aware of how um, I just really want some people in this room to be free from this, free from people pleasing. And I don't, I don't want you to find freedom in anything other than Jesus. I want that freedom from being controlled by others or seeking approval or treasuring those things. I want you to be freed by Jesus 
Christ has accomplished for you everything you need. If you're looking for that anywhere else, you're not going to find it. He is so good. And remarkably, he came not to be served, but to serve. He didn't just proclaim this to us. He sets a perfect example for us. And in setting the example for us, he achieves for us what we can't achieve on our own. That's why we enjoy Jesus as we take this supper. This is a statement of how good he is and how sufficient he is for us. That we'll look to him and we'll never steer away from the things he tells us to do because we think it would be more benefiting to us to do something else. I want you to know some of us struggle horribly with this and there's freedom in Christ. I mean, it's, it's abundant. It's not just partial, it's complete freedom and we can walk in it daily. So I want you to look to your savior this morning. As we take this, I want you to take it and I want you to ask yourself, Lord, is there, is there anywhere where I'm not trusting? I want you to show that to me so I can take this wholeheartedly. I want to spend a few moments just praying, considering the Lord, and we're just going to be in silence just for a few moments, and then we're, we're going to take and eat. So let's spend a few minutes just reflecting and meditating on the Lord. Lord, we are thankful for the work of the Holy Spirit that we could have any understanding of your ways at all. We thank you for accomplish, accomplishing for us what we can't accomplish on our own. We thank you um, for being completely fulfilling. Lord, thank you for loving us with a love that's not lacking anywhere. Thank you for loving us with a love that can't be improved upon. Those are the reasons that we take this supper humbly, looking to you and knowing that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Lord, we want to be controlled by you. We want to be vessels used by you as you see fit. We want to do as it says in Romans and present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable before our Lord, because you gave your life for that. We love you. We praise you. We take this supper and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.